सहनावतो सहनौ भुनक्तो सह वीर करवाहै तेजस्वीनावधीतमस्तु मिषावै ोपनिषद we had gandhi we are on this um second chapter second section eighth mantra we had done the eighth mantra and we'll proceed from there what's going on here um the original question of nachiketa about death and the deeper meaning of that was the nature of the self what happens after death what is the nature of the self do we die at physical death um, and the answer is no we go on to other lives but then what's the point of all of that what are we actually and then um yama the teacher uses that question as an occasion to teach vedanta that we are actually not this physical body which dies at death if you if you uh, i mean that is absolutely sure it dies at death Uh, we are not even this um, subtle body this mind this personality this limited individuality which survives physical death but that's not good news because it goes on to other existences this this kind of existence just continues in various uh, iterations in different forms and uh, the problems also will be there but beyond that vedanta says that we are unlimited existence consciousness bliss the ultimate reality of the universe which is your own reality and if we realize that we are uh, forever released from suffering uh, we attain fulfillment so that teaching um, yama uses this question to give that teaching and he took his time to come to it as we have been studying you know uh, he tested nachiketa to see whether he is fit for this knowledge and then once he decided that nachiketa is fit fit to receive this knowledge he uh spend some time talking about the initial preparations you know the control of the senses focus of the mind and so on the analogy of the chariot if you remember so i keep forgetting and is it an analogy or a metaphor i keep mixing up the two so that one and then um then he comes to the actual teaching which is what is going on now so these uh, mantras are very valuable because they are the heart of vedanta they are heart of advaita vedanta they they talk about the real nature of 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 reality itself of the world itself and um, that real nature of this world of this universe is you your real nature this atman brahman oneness so that's what he's talking about just by the way somebody sent me this interesting video of uh, about the latest nobel prize in physics and uh, they say you know, physics the nobel prize is for proving the universe is not real locally so again all of those are, are very technical terms as i learned so what is reality that subject to cause and effect and um, so local reality would mean um, there is strict cause and effect locally and not beyond because 
causality is limited by the speed of light also because information cannot travel faster than light and then they, they bring in the concept of quantum entanglement does that violate this non-local this local causality and they say yes it does the, the experiments proved um, so across incredible distances also two particles seem to exchange information um, proving that that this idea of local reality is not true. That's anyway, as much as I get out of that. So yeah, in a, in a different way, notice the same idea, not in the way classical Advaita Vedanta was talking about it, but we are looking at it from outside as it were, and uh, coming to very much the same conclusions, the appearance nature of this world, the underlying oneness, um, and the uh, crucial importance of consciousness to all of this. These are uh, same in the ingredients, whether it is uh, in uh, modern physics or in you know, the inside out view uh, investigations of Advaita Vedanta and yoga. Maybe. So the eighth mantra said, Yayesha supteshu jagati kamam kamam purusho nirmimana tadeva shukram tad brahma that's what we did last time. What does it mean? Here, um, Yama is telling Nachiketa about the ultimate reality. And what is the ultimate reality of this universe? It's nothing other than you. And the way, what you, which you, this body, no. This mind, thoughts, feelings, emotions, not even that. He says it's consciousness. What is this consciousness? He says that which through which you use the mind and the senses and contact and external world so-called external world and have these waking experiences and when the body falls asleep the mind is still awake and the mind conjures up its own objects thoughts emotions Im images dreams and the same consciousness reveals those dreams and gives you a dream experience then the mind falls asleep completely and the same consciousness reveals the blankness that ensues when Senses are not active, mind is not active, consciousness continues. This non-sleeping, ever-awake consciousness, you are, he says. And uh, he says, uh, that is Amrita Muchyate, that is immortal. Body is mortal, mind is ever-changing. But that pure consciousness, a consciousness in itself is immortal, and you are that. Further, he says, Tasmin Loka Shritaha. It's not just that you are just this little flash of consciousness there and then there's this vast universe. No, this vast universe is set in, grounded in that consciousness. This is the incredible uh, conclusion, claim of Advaita Vedanta. If you don't do that, if you stop that earlier st stage that you are consciousness and then there is this world, that is Sankhya, but matter consciousness duality. But now he's saying all of matter, so-called matter, external matter, external matter means the world outside. An internal matter, which means our thoughts, feelings, emotions, this personality, which I call Sarva Priyananda, all of that is an appearance in the consciousness, which I am. And then since the whole universe is set in that consciousness, there must be this one consciousness common to all of us. There's nothing that exceeds it. That's nothing that lies outside of it. Everything is included in it and not really included in it. Included in it would be like a bag or a box in which you have put everything. Not like that. It is 
that one consciousness alone which appears as this universe. Not that there is a consciousness, there is a universe, and somehow the universe has been stuffed into that consciousness. No. Etadvaita, this is what you had asked for, O Nachiketa. This indeed is that. That what? What you had asked for. Now, um, Yama will give three famous examples which reverberate throughout the centuries, you know, in Indian texts. Fire example, air example, and sun example. Uh, Agni, Vayu, Surya. Fire, air, air or wind, and the sun. As examples, remember what we are going to read now. We are not going to read about fire or we are not going to read about the atmosphere. We are not, going, we are not interested in we are not solar scientists. No, those are just examples to try to prove a point or to demonstrate something, point out something about consciousness, which is you. So always very interesting because it's about you all the time pointing back to you. And who doesn't love to be you know, pointed back at oneself? We are, we are our own favorite subjects. Nine. Agniryatheko bhuvanam pravishto rupam rupam pratirupo babhuva ekas tatha sarva bhutantaratma rupam rupam pratirupo bahischa. Beautiful and powerful mantras. Just uh, attend to it, you'll see how inspiring it is. What does it mean? Just as fire, though one having entered the world, assumes separate forms in respect of different shapes. Similarly, the self inside all beings, though one appears a form, assumes a form in respect of each shape, and yet it is outside. All right, let's try to understand this. First of all, fire. What is meant by fire? It's a principle. It's not just one like, like a forest fire which, which broke out somewhere, a particular fire, not like that. It's the principle of heat. So there is heat all over the universe. There is heat pervading our body. That's how we are alive. Heat is life. There's heat in the atmosphere. That's why we are not freezing. There's heat in the water, in the soil, uh, in the, even in outer space. There's some basal level of heat going very far out um, into the solar system also. So the heat is all pervasive. Um, life depends on heat, basically. And when you have a fire, so actual fire, which we can see and you know, it lights up and there is a, it becomes really hot. So in this way of thinking, that's just a manifestation of already existing heat. That's just an intensification. It comes to our notice. And then the fire engine comes and then tries to put it out or something. And there is smoke and heat and there's a huge hue and cry. But basically, it says, Heat is all pervasive. Everywhere heat is there. And as a matter of fact, physics will tell you, thermodynamics, thermodynamics will tell you that, of course, it's there. Heat is there everywhere. But this one heat, all pervasive, when it bursts out into flame, a log, a fire, fireplace, um, or a matchstick, uh, or, you know, or, or somewhere, God forbid, a building on fire. Um, so fire, when it breaks out into fire, you say, oh, there's a fire. It becomes perceptible. It's something that we can experience. I'm explaining the example first. And then we'll go on to Brahman or Atman or consciousness. So all pervasive, in, all pervasive invisible heat occasionally 
becomes uh, manifested when you, for example, burn something and then there is more heat and then there's light and smoke. And so we call it a fire, but it's all, all, already existing heat, which is manifest. So sometimes it becomes perceptible. Just like that, Yama wants to say, consciousness is actually all pervasive. But when it's reflected in particular minds and bodies, then it becomes uh, perceptible, experienceable. Where? And just like fire. So you say, where's the fire? There. You are one such fire. I am one such fire. All these people sitting around, these are all such fires. Um, consciousness becomes manifest here. How is it perceptible? Just like a fire, the heat becomes perceptible. You can feel the heat. It's crackling. It gives up light and smoke. Similarly, consciousness becomes manifest here. How does it become manifest? Not that you burst into flame, but something pretty much like it. Pretty much like it. You begin to see. You begin to hear and smell and taste and touch. You begin to think and remember and feel pain and enjoy and suffer. You begin to act, do things. And this whole mechanism is lit up by the presence of consciousness. And then all other you know, sense organs, motor organs, they kick into action. The mind kicks into action. It is powered by prana, the life forces. So this is like a fire. Just like a fire, it can be lit and it can be extinguished. It is lit when it's born and when this body perishes, that particular fire goes out. But you don't go out. Because you are never that fire anyway. You are not this body. You are not this mind. You are not the body-mind you know, bursting into flame when consciousness is reflected into that. No. You are the consciousness itself. You remain imperceptible at the death of the physical body. It becomes perceptible when a living body is created. It is still one principle. Just as... Okay, the second thing. When heat bursts into flame, and there are multiple fires here and there, after a natural disaster or forest fires, for example, in California. So forest fires, you have multiple fires. So it seems to have this fire and that fire. But if you look at it as underlying principle of heat, it's not this heat or that heat. Physics will tell you heat is one principle. It's uh, there pervading. Similarly, consciousness is one consciousness. But when it, is, it lights up various bodies and minds, we say, many consciousnesses. Yeah. Here, the Zoom is telling us 71 people are there in this uh, meeting, in this class. So there's 71. How many fires are burning here? 71. How many consciousnesses are here? 71. But actually underlying one consciousness. Which one am I? This one, each of these 71, actually one consciousness. Practically, for our, our transactional purposes, we behave as if we are 71. Zoom also counts us as 71. We also behave like individuals. And like fires behave individually, but it's all underlying one. So one underlying consciousness appears as many. What's, what's, and the one underlying I, the real I, appears as many, apparent I. What's the connection? Crucial point. What's the connection between pure consciousness and this apparent consciousness? The real I and this apparent I. I am in the vertical I, not this. So what is the connection? The real I, the real consciousness, is the one which lights up power, so to say. The apparent consciousness is here in all this. Just as the principle of heat is that which, which makes all fires possible. So...
this is another thing so one is perceptible imperceptible another one is that uh, one um, yes somebody has said upadhi i think probir babu correct this is the vedantic concept of upadhi i'm coming to that now if i ask what is the form of the fire as heat as the principle of heat pervading the entire universe no form but as fire it has a form when a log of fire burns you will see this crackling fiery like a like a log another example is in old sanskrit texts is of a red hot iron ball so they had furnaces in those days you know metal work is a very ancient thing so aya golaka red hot iron ball so the ball is made of iron and it's round a sphere and the fire which enters into heat which enters into it makes it red hot in a in a furnace now that fire that also takes a shape what shape the shape of uh, the heated object uh, the fire which burns a log burning log the fire there takes a particular shape what is the shape the shape of that burning log shankaracharya in his uh, commentary says often it takes the form of the fuel which is burning so if there is a particular form it takes that form what's the point consciousness takes a form what form does it take the conscious body the fuel which is burning here so that consciousness as it is formless not only formless it's not even an object it is a pure subject but it takes a form here so many forms and we feel it i am this conscious being so it's like fire burning a particular um, you know piece of log or something and the fire seems to have taken that log like shape or an iron ball spherical shape so on um similarly consciousness seems to take the shape of the bo the body which is lit up by consciousness more subtle and more direct consciousness takes the shape of our thoughts so every thought we have every memory we have every desire we have every uh, negative you know, feeling of pain and suffering and dissatisfaction we have all are lit up by consciousness and all seem to be conscious that's why in modern consciousness studies they don't make a distinction between mind and consciousness here is the key why why is it not why the distinction is not made because consciousness seems to have taken up that form consciousness seems to be the mind now the sanskrit words are so well designed you know the word for pure consciousness is chit chit you can say c h i t and the word for mind is chitta c h i t t a one t is added chitta in mansado in uttarakhand used to say uh, chittam chiditi vijaniyat takaro vishayadhyasa the mind know the mind itself to be pure consciousness this is a very is a door to enlightenment no because the mind is something that we are perceiving all the time we are experiencing the mind all the time know the mind itself to be pure consciousness except the ta which is added is he says very technical term vishayadhyasa the superimposition of object if you can empty the mind of all object pure consciousness alone is left 
Rupert Spira put it very nicely. In, uh, he said, he said something very, very perceptive. Awareness of objects e eclipses, eclipses awareness of awareness. So awareness of objects, when same consciousness, it illumines the most subtle objects are thoughts, feelings, emotions, ego. When it's illumined, then those objects, thoughts, feelings, especially the ego, I, it occludes, eclipses awareness itself. And therefore, the Patanjala Yoga method is to extinguish, at least temporarily, the experience of objects. So close your eyes, don't see, don't hear, don't smell, taste or touch, don't move, don't talk, even mentally. Don't think. Very difficult. Don't think. Stop. When you stop, then the awareness is there. Objects are removed, even temporarily for a short while. Then awareness of awareness, it becomes clear. This is the yogic approach, not Advaitic approach. I would want you to understand this. This is crucial. What was Rupert Spira's... Um, Statement, awareness of objects eclipses awareness of awareness. So the yogi will try to stop the awareness of objects, remove the objects. You can't stop awareness. You can only remove the objects by yogic samadhi. And then you realize that you are awareness. That's one way. The Advaitic way is not that awareness of objects eclipses the awareness of awareness. No. It is ignorance which eclipses the awareness of awareness. When you are watching a movie, you can say the movie is hiding the screen. And the hero and the, and the scenery and the, um, the action scenes and the emotional scenes, they are all hiding the screen, the movie screen. So what do you do? then immediately the thing will be to switch off the pictures when you can see the movie screen. But that's the yogic approach. But you might say, Swami, it doesn't mean that um, you have to switch off the movie. Once you know what the movie screen is, even while watching a movie, is the, uh, is the um, screen really hidden? Is the screen really hidden? It is the screen alone which is appearing to you as the movie. Once you know what the screen is, you say, you'll say, I'm seeing the movie, I'm seeing the screen also, of course, because I'm looking directly at the screen. So, the Advaitin will say, what is hiding the screen from you your, is your ignorance of what a screen is. When you realize what is a screen, even when the movie is going on, you, you, are, you know that you are experiencing this, um, the screen. Similarly, if you, your ignorance about Brahman is removed, if you know what, what you are, not the body, not the mind, the witness consciousness, then in every experience, the witness consciousness will be revealed. You don't have to stop experiences. So this distinction between the yogic insight and the advaitic insight, I must, um, I must stress this. This is crucial. Um, the yogic, in, then it will make a big difference in our sadhana. The yogic insight will insist then, once you have got this ready, then you have to meditate. You have to seriously, seriously shut down and sit quietly and quieten the, you know, cut out the external world, quieten the mind, 
and then turn inwards hoping for those crucial moments of absolute stillness when it becomes clear to you that will be the approach a careful and consistent deep meditation very difficult and the advaitic approach is uh, an inquiry trying to appreciate what consciousness is using the mind listening to the talks reading the book sitting quietly and observing and thinking yes and then so by inquiry the to put it in one word in yoga the method is dhyana samadhi in uh, advaita the method is vichara inquiry however in advaita it doesn't mean that meditation or samadhi is not useful very much useful you will try and see what happens in advaitic uh, inquiry is it doesn't take you very far because our minds are so fickle and weak the inquiry doesn't take hold so it requires the advaita uses meditation to strengthen focus uh, the mind to make the inquiry strong and consistent otherwise it won't work it will just re- at best it will remain some kind of understanding in fact shankaracharya says in the introduction to lead up to this mantra he says although this teaching has already been given let me read out the english translation of what shankaracharya has said as an introduction to this mantra since the knowledge of the unity of the self unity here doesn't mean two things are being united it means one self one underlying consciousness though validated by proof and reiterated more than once does not find a lodging in the hearts of those brahmanas of insincere intellect whose minds are swayed by the perverted intellect of numerous logicians therefore the upanishad being eager to inculcate it says again and again so multiple examples are being given shankaracharya's whole point is there he is following the method of inquiry vichara but he says it doesn't lodge firmly insincere means here uh, fickle uh, minds that means you get it but don't stay with it again you slip away somehow so just as fire takes the form of the fuel similarly consciousness quote on quote takes doesn't actually take any form quote on quote seems to have taken this is a description of our world right now i the consciousness have taken the sarva priyananda form i the consciousness have taken all the thoughts feelings emotions uh, memories here going on here apparently taken but not really because those forms are appearances in consciousness it's not that consciousness has somehow become those forms but just because they are appearances doesn't mean they won't work they will work just as a car in a movie definitely works if a the hero is driving a car suddenly you realize it's a movie will the car stop working it's a movie car how will, how can you expect it to work no it everything works perfectly in the movie similarly all science all technology everything will work perfectly in this world of appearances the underlying reality is what vedanta is interested in and then now he comes to the um air example another example same point another example vayuryathaiko bhuvanam pravishto rupam rupam pratirupa babhuva ஒன்ஸ் 
though one assumes a form in respect of each shape and yet it is outside. I forgot to stress the word bahi, outside, very interesting word. It means transcendent. So um, just like heat, the principle of heat, if you one fire starts and the fire is extinguished, heat is not extinguished. It just becomes imperceptible. Consciousness, it enters into everything in this world, every, every uh, existing thing, especially living beings, there it becomes manifest, like a thing bursting into flame. And yet it remains transcendent. Nothing here in this body or the mind can actually affect that pure consciousness, which is you. You are not polluted, damaged, um, sinful, None of it, none of it, no causality there affects you. That's why I was thinking it matches quite interestingly with the idea of the non-locality of reality, which this new uh, physics thing is talking about. Anyway, that, that's also an example. If Yama knew, he would have used that as an example. So, bahi, bahi means transcendent. And that point will come up again. It's external to or transcendent. It transcends this world of appearances just as I can put it this way, everything in the movie, the cars and the characters, the good guys and the bad guys and the sky and the earth, everything is pervaded by the movie screen. And yet the movie screen remains external to the movie. It's not affected by events in the movie. Nothing that happens in the movie has anything to do with the screen, except the screen makes it all possible. If there's a great inferno in a movie, the screen is not burnt. If there is a great flood in the movie, screen doesn't become wet, and so on. Similarly, he says, as this great atmosphere, having entered into this world, assumes separate forms in respect of different shapes. Similarly, the self inside all beings. So inside all beings, when he says, Atma inside all beings, inside means not that the beings are there and there's one self inside each of them. It is the Atman, which is appearing as all of these beings. It's like, saying the gold inside all ornaments. It's not that there are a bunch of ornaments and some gold has been put into them. It's the gold alone which appears as all these ornaments. The clay alone which appears as all this pottery. Uh, and it enters into all beings. Another good example Sadhu gave, when you play musical you know, air instruments, so somebody, when you play a, a whistle, or a flute, or a jazz musician plays the saxophone. The sound is different. The range of sounds you can produce, the music that you can produce, they all, each instrument is clearly different and has a different style of functioning, all of that. But the air that you blow into each of them is exactly the same. That's a nice example. You play a range of musical instruments with you know, a little whistle and a flute and a saxophone and a trumpet, whatnot, and a conch shell. Um, I remember conch shell that reminded me. There was a British delegation from British Council in Calcutta. They were visiting the Belurmat, and uh, I think I was asked to show them around. It was evening, the time of Arati. So I was showing them around. And this is the main temple of Sri Ramakrishna. This is the old temple. And there is the Swami Vivekananda's room. So they were a group, four or five, they were following me closely and listening to what I said and nodding. And 
and suddenly you know just before arati in the evening belur mat the conch in any hindu temple the conch will be blown so the conch is blown then suddenly i saw the delegate delegation was not with me anymore they had all disappeared so i went back to look for them i saw them all gathered around the monk who was blowing the conch and one of them was excitedly explaining to the other that's actually the skeleton of a dead sea creature and that is air is being blown through that to produce this particular sound so they were all fascinated and taking pictures of the monk blowing the conch but the example is very nice whatever you're blowing a conch um, a flute um, a whistle a saxophone a trumpet the air that you blow into each instrument is exactly the same air and yet what different forms of sounds it takes similarly he says another example is the air having entered into different forms what forms does the air enter into into us remember prana vayu and prana are, are connected so the very breath in our lungs into each of us it has entered into every living creature um, so and then it becomes it sustains prana sustains prana literally means life forces it sustains these living bodies look at the variety of bodies look at the variety of life forms among human beings and non humans it's the same prana similarly it is the same consciousness having a, entered or appearing as you can say entered or appearing as all of these beings yet it is one just as the air is one all the effects are many and it appears as all these forms as the prana appears as all these living bodies appears as living bodies means it is these living bodies the life is sustained by prana yet it is one and it is external if all living beings were to perish the great atmosphere would still be there vayu vayu would still be there if all these bodies were to perish you the atman would still be there but you would not be perceptible just like the heat would still be there if all fires were extinguished um, if um, the living bodies died prana would still be there similarly the entire universe were to disappear you atman brahman would still be there but not perceptible not experienceable not doing anything nothing would be happening it would just be um, pure subjective ex- existence without any external objective manifestation all right that's what happens um in vedanta in pralaya when the cosmic dissolution the universe is dissolved and only ishvara exists with maya so there is no projection no objective universe and then the objective universe is is projected again that is srishti creation all right now the next one is the so fire example air example and now the sun example this is a very beautiful example powerful example this is 11 सूर्यो यथाक चक्षु न लिप्यते चाक्षुषेकूताे न बाह्य जस्ट एस द सन विच इज द आई ऑफ द होल वर्ल्ड इज नॉट टेन्टेड बाय दक्युलर एंड एक्सटर्नल डिफेक्ट सिमिलरली द सेल्फ दैट इज बट वन इन ऑल बीइंग्स इज नॉट टेन्टेड बाय द सरोज ऑफ द वर्ल्ड it being transcendental okay so important mantra what is the result of all of this a question may be raised i'm telling you according to the commentary by shankara a question may be raised that 
if you are the self in all beings, you will suffer. This one self, it suffers so much in this body. I, this consciousness, yes, I'm consciousness. I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, true. But because of that, I have pain. I have suffering. Disease causes me suffering. Pain cause, physical pain causes me suffering. Emotional pain causes me even more suffering. And then old age, disease, death, those will cause me suffering. Mine, this body's, and for others also. So being a self, a conscious self, is no um, great thing, you know, it, can, it leaves me vulnerable to so much suffering. And if I'm the self in all of these suffering individual beings, how much suffering I will get? So he says, won't this consciousness be subject to suffering? And then uh, he gives the sun example. He says, no. Consciousness, you, your real nature, is not at all affected by the actual existing suffering of the world. You are not affected. Why not? First of all, the example. This is just as Surya, um, what is as he say, Bhuvanascha Chakshu, I think he says, Sarvalokascha Chakshu. Beautiful poetic expression. The sun is the eye of all the worlds. The sun is the eye means the sunlight enables us to see. Not, it's not literally the eye. It, sunlight enables all beings to see in daylight. So every all living beings which have eyes, they can see because of sunlight. So that which enables us to see, in that sense, it is the eye of the world. Sarvaloka, of all the world, the sun is the eye. And because it enables us to see. How is it connected to Atman consciousness? Consciousness is that which enables us to see. See, this is a beautiful example. What is it that gives us the experience of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and thinking and remembering and being a person and desiring and hating and waking and dreaming and sleeping? All these experiences which we call our life. What makes it possible? Don't say the sun. <laughs> it's consciousness. It is the internal sun. So Atman consciousness in Vedanta is often compared to the sun. It's the internal sun. It is you. You are ever blazing forth with undimmed light. And it is your light which illumines the mind. And it is the lit up mind which illumines the sensory processes. And these senses being lit up you, you can see the world, you can hear the sounds, you can smell and taste and touch and all of that. So all experiences in our life are made possible by this one I, you know, E-Y-E-I. What I, within quotes, I of consciousness. Or I of consciousness, I mean, it just means consciousness. And you are that. This is where the Kena Upanishad actually begins. We will read it sometime uh, in the years ahead. Uh, the first mantra of the Kena Upanishad. Keneshitam patati preshitam mana Keneshitam vacham imam vadanti Chakshu shrotram kaudeva yunakti um, So I forgot, I forgot the whole thing. So basically what it means is impelled by what do these thoughts come in my mind? Do I have experience of thinking? What from where do these words come up? How do I see and how, how do, what makes seeing possible, hearing possible, this breathing possible. So all motor organs, sensory organs, what he means is the experience of it all. He's not asking about 
the visual system, the auditory system is not asking a question of physiology, is asking a question of our experience. And nowadays it's even more clear because nowadays you have all these machines with sensors, which can, after a certain fashion, they can see, hear, and uh, touch, and all of that. I mean, when you walk into the airport, doesn't the door slide open? When you put your hand under the, in the sink and on the tap, doesn't the water come out by itself? So in a certain sense, quote unquote, it's seeing you or sensing you. You would say, what's the point? But does that sensor have any internal state of seeing, uh, you know, a conscious experience of seeing? No, it doesn't. It's just a physical process. Similarly, our eyes, ears, and all of these are biological instruments. There, there's some biological process going on there. What is the spark that makes it all light up with experience? And that's consciousness. And of course, reflected consciousness here. Um, Praveer Babu had introduced a term, upadhi. Let me just mention it. It's a technical term in Vedanta, but very important. Uh, upadhi is that by holding on to which, you know, whose, whose properties are transformed, are transferred to consciousness, appears to be transferred to consciousness. A good example is um, crystal or glass. Here's glass. See, it's clear glass. You can see it here. Clear glass. Now, watch this glass. If I put the orange robe behind it, now the glass seems orange. See, it's clear. Now it seems orange. Is the glass orange? Not at all. It's the proximity of this upadhi, the orange robe, which makes the clear glass seem orange. So this upadhi is, is that which is, seems to be transferring its properties. What property? Orange color to the glass, which is otherwise clear. A red uh, robe would transfer red color to it. In fact, the example is Japa Kusuma, Spatika Japa Kusuma, a red flower and colorless crystal. That's the example which is transparent crystal, example which is often used in Vedanta. So that which has no color appears to have colors and even multiple colors. So Maya conjures up these upadhis. What are these upadhis? Mind and senses and body and external objects. And consciousness seems to be colored and seems to be like, I am a thinker, I see, I hear. And there, is, there are objects to see, there are sounds to hear. All of these are upadhis. And they are names and forms and activities conjured up by Maya and then it appears in consciousness. Then, um, so, now the sunlight example, the next thing is, that um, just as sunlight is the eye of the entire world, we have understood this. Then the uh, Yama says, notice, this sunlight is not affected by the defects of what it illumines. Everything in this world is illumined by sunlight. But there might be, so sunlight shines equally upon the water and the Ganga, the pure water of the Ganga, the most pure river, I mean, spiritually pure, not actually physically. Now, now they're cleaning it up, luckily. Um, then it shines upon the drain water, ditch water, equally. Is the sunlight purified by the Ganga water? It shines upon. Is, does the sunlight become impure by the ditch water it shines upon? No. It's completely unaffected by the defects of the external objects which it illumines. Even the eyes um, are unaffected uh, by the 
uh, objects they see. Right. You see, uh, when we look at, so uh, in the Dharma Shastras, they tell us about what should be seen and what should not, not, not be seen. If something is sinful to see, something is uh, um, uh, holy to see. So there are certain things which are good to see. So the, for example, the forms, the divine forms of gods and goddesses are you know, a, a beautiful nature. I was taking a walk, walk in the park, extraordinary fall colors, very stunning, good. It uplifts the mind. Remember, the external beauty is not the point. Nor is the selfie the point or the pictures the point. The point is that should elevate the mind. A sense of sublime feeling should come in the mind. So those are good to see because they create a good impact on the mind. There are things which are maybe sinful or bad or, or negative to see. So those defects, but they actually do not affect the eye which, which sees them. So the point there is, Whatever you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, whatever you think, remember, enjoy, suffer, none of it pollutes or damages the consciousness which you are. So you are entirely safe from all. You, can, you are experiencing the entire world, life after life, and you are safe from the world. So that is an incredible thing that has just been said. You may even, in, uh, one may experience sorrow, loss, intense physical pain, and yet you are safe. It will come, it will go, and you will still remain the same consciousness. Even when it is there, that's the incredible thing about Advaita Vedanta. Even in the midst of that suffering, you're still all right as consciousness. So, uh, by internal or external impurities, internal impurities means thoughts, impure thoughts. Thoughts may be impure. But the consciousness which illumines those impure thoughts is not affected. And suffering, where is suffering? Apparently, it might be outside. COVID is outside. That annoying person is outside. But then actually it comes to us through our body. So suffering is more than outside, it's in the body. More than the body, it's in the mind. If you don't believe it, go to the uh, ICU in Mount Sinai or somewhere. You'll see people who are terribly ill suffering but actually when they are in sleep or in a coma or in you know under sedation they're not suffering because you need the mind to suffer if the mind is shut down or if the mind is not connected to the suffering you don't suffer actually so um but the consciousness which illumines the suffering the presence of suffering the presence of pain presence of disease, presence of death also, it illumines. But the consciousness itself is not in pain, nor in sorrow, nor does it die. This is a very big point which has been just been made. Tanchankaracharya, he is important for Advaita Vedanta, so he rolls out his Advaitic machinery here. He says that a rope may appear as a snake, um, that the seashell can appear as uh, the naked, naked can appear as uh, silver. Um, the, in the desert, the desert, may, there may be wire, uh, water, you, may, it, you know, like a mirage appears as water, or there may be dust. And the, the sky may seem dirty. Little kids think the sky has, needs to be scrubbed, it's become uh, dirty. It hasn't. Um, similarly, it may seem that I, the consciousness, am suffering. But actually, just as there's no connection of a snake with the rope, 
no connection of the mirage water with the actual uh, desert, the sand of the desert. In another place, Shankaracharya says, all the water in the mirage is not enough to wet one grain of sand in the desert. Exactly like that. And this, the nacre and the silver example, also a classical example. Sometimes this nacre, like a seashell, it flashes on the beach and looks like silver. So somebody mistook it for silver, but it's no silver. It just looks like that. Just as it has no connection with that. Where does it come from? Shankaracharya says the mechanism of that is a confusion in the mind of the onlooker. The, mind, the onlooker is confused, does not know that it's a rope. And because of the similarity between rope and snake, thinks it's a snake. The rope itself is not affected by the, let alone the snake, by even by the confusion of, of the on, onlooker. So here is the subtle and important point. All our problems are the confusion of this mind. And we think, I am hurting, I am in sorrow, I am old, I am lonely, I am dying. All mind, the real I consciousness is neither in sorrow, nor hurting, nor lonely, nor is it going to die. The real consciousness, the, the, the real self, the real I is like the rope, not like the snake. Just as the so-called snake has no connection with the rope and has no effect on the rope. Similarly, the afflictions of the body, of the mind, have no connection to pure consciousness and have no effect upon it. And yet they depend on pure consciousness, on Atman, because without that they wouldn't appear at all. They wouldn't be there at all. Bahihi, external. This word is very important. Shankaracharya says, you are independent. You transcend uh, the, the appearances of body-mind. And therefore, you are safe from all those problems. Ekaha, Surya, just as one sun illumines the eye of the entire world, it's one consciousness uh, illumines the experiences in all bodies and minds. So we are one self. Sarva Bhuta Antaratma. Again and again, this term is being used. The self of all sentient beings, of all beings, the self of all beings, the inner self of all beings. Sarva Bhuta Antaratma. What do you mean inner? The body is external. Mind is in between. Inner to the mind. That which illumines the mind. And through the mind illumines the senses and the body. That is the inner self. Whose inner self? Yours and his and hers and mine. All of that is one inner self. Same thing. See this, how consistent it is. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says to Arjuna, Kshetragyam chapi maam vidhi sarvakshetreshu bharata. O Arjuna, in all these fields, know me alone to be the knower of the field. One knower of the field. One consciousness in all bodies and minds. Appearing to be many. One, fire, one principle of heat. Appearing to be many fires. Bursting forth and extinguished. One air, atmosphere. Appearing to be many living beings. When it's like the breath in our lungs seems, seems to be separate life. It's one life. Hmm. Very good examples. Let me look at the um, questions. Girish says the yogic path to enlightenment deterministic or probabilistic. In other words, is following the recommended process, cultivating a pure heart, doing good deeds, and practicing Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasan, still a throw of the dice. Could say your karma determines that is some, somehow somewhat unsatisfactory. No, not a throw of the dice. Always you will become enlightened. Now, you might say the question is, why is so few uh, people who are enlightened? And 
But then we are seeing only a tiny slice of time and space in this little life. Uh, from a Vedantic perspective, you are the Atman. What can prevent you from realizing your own self, which is always available to you? Something in this world we may be able to attain, we may fail to attain. But our self-realization, you are the self after all. What can really stop you? You will, Kashmiri Shaivism goes even further, that you will realize it when you want to. There's nothing stopping you except yourself. When you want to become enlightened, you will become enlightened. What can stop Shiva from becoming free? Shiva is always free. It is the Leela, the play of Shiva, that uh, Shiva is pretending to be not free. You might say, no, but now I want to be free. So why am I not free? Then the Kashmiri Shaivis will say that you don't want to be free. Now you want to be a spiritual seeker. So you're now a spiritual seeker. The moment you see that enough of being a spiritual seeker, now let me be enlightened. That moment you'll be enlightened. That is Kashmiri Shaivism. Advaita doesn't go so far. Advaita says that uh, you have ignorance and you have to work towards removing that ignorance. Then you will see that not only are free, you always were free. It was always all right. That's what you will see. Um, Patanjali Yoga says that um, to remove the ignorance, calming the mind is necessary. Samadhi is necessary. Bhakti path says, all of this, try as much as you will. You will see that you don't make much of a progress. <laughs> One inch here or there. You take the help of a much greater power. And that is Ishwar or Bhagavan or God. Take the help of that power in your day-to-day -day life. In your life, so-called life in the world. And take the help of that power, especially in your spiritual life. That is the path of Bhakti. And that power exists. So these are different um, paradigms. The Bhakti paradigm, the yogic paradigm, and the Advaitic paradigm. So, will it work? Yes, absolutely. I've told this often earlier. This is the same question which was asked by Professor Parimal Patil. He is a philosophy professor at Harvard University. Why are so few people enlightened? What will, what will your answer be, Swami? So, I said, um, I gave him two answers. One is that, it's not that so few, few people are enlightened. Maybe in just in our experience, in our time. But eventually everybody will be enlightened because this is our real nature and it's bound to happen. Not only that, that's the whole purpose. According to Vedanta, the whole purpose of the universe is that, to drive you towards enlightenment, God-realization. So that's the idea. So what can stop you? This is the point of life itself. The second uh, reason I gave him, second argument I gave him was, why should one stick to spirituality if enlightenment is such a remote prospect? second argument was, once you get a taste of this, what else will you do? This is the best thing in life. You have to lead your life, of course, but you will never let go of spirituality. That's why for monks, for devotees who ask this question, I've seen senior monks say that, all right, stop. Don't meditate. Don't come to Vedanta class. Don't turn up in the ashram. Forget it. You've done enough in this life. Forget it. Maybe next time life you can pick up. Now go and enjoy your life. And the response is, no, no, no. I can't do without this. This is very important to me. I remember uh, I myself once, of course, I wasn't brave enough to ask a senior Swami. I asked a senior Brahmachari that was in Deoghar many years ago. So foolish, restless. I told this Brahmachari that, oh, I've been here for so many, I don't know, weeks or months, not even one year. And I'm not, you know, becoming enlightened. I'm not making spiritual progress in spiritual path. I don't think I'm making progress. And then uh, um, the Brahmachari said so wisely, he said, all right, go back home. I said, no, I can't do that. 
And he said, look, that which you called your home for 23 long years since your, since your birth, you've been here barely, what, two or three weeks or months, and now you say you can't do that. Isn't that progress enough? What a huge change in your life, and it's become natural to you. And I said, yeah, that's true. So what else will you do? Once you get the taste of spiritual life in whatever path, in bhakti, in, in yoga, in, in Advaita, in Buddhism, whatever. And then I told you also, if you remember, P Professor Patil said to me, uh, he said, those two are good uh, examples, but good answers, but they're a little theoretical. And then he said, let me give you another reason why people stick to spiritual life. It is because of the benefits people get from day to day. It's not about becoming enlightened. It will happen, but that's not the point. We are getting benefits from day to day throughout our lives. The strength to live life itself, there's a meaning to life. We get a lot of deep benefit and the, the strength to face the ups and downs, the shocks in life. And we feel there is meaning here and we are growing spirituality, all these benefits we are getting. And that's why we stick to it, which is a very great answer, I think wonderful answer. Alpana Chatterjee says, when one begins to understand we are not this play of Maya, the mind is feels bound by the shackles of it. Mind dismisses the understanding and intellect. How does the mind break free of it? Yes. Our problems are not so much intellectual, actually. Our problems are more um, at the level of emotion and conditioning. Uh, we react instinctively to the problems of life. That requires, that's why the yogas are very important. Karma yoga for purification of mind, it makes a huge difference. That then, especially karma yoga, that which seemed theoretical, now it will seem a most practical and living philosophy. Advaita. Before the purification of mind, it seemed like a nice and cool philosophy. But how do I face life with this kind of you know, abstract philosophy? With the purification of mind, the same teachings will seem absolutely real. This is real. Bhakti, devotion, very useful. Our real problem is that we are being continuously pulled by the world. And bhakti solves that problem. Because then the pull is channeled towards God. Yoga, meditation, very useful for Advaita. Because no matter what we do, we are not holding on. It, it's, uh, we are unable to be steady in our uh, realization, understanding. Not that understanding is not there. We are unable to be steady. One sadhu in Uttarakhand, he put it nicely, I'll translate into English. He said, Prapta gyan ka adar kare. Respect, let's see, respect the knowledge already acquired. This is such an important teaching. After some time, we realize we have got enormous amounts of knowledge. The saints of old times. They didn't attend so many classes and have libraries of books. Yet they became enlightened. Because the little that the Guru told them, they held on to that steadfastly to the point of death. And then they made the breakthrough. So the uh, answer is, continue to, do, continue to meditate, cultivate devotion, practice Karma Yoga along with your Vedanta. One day you'll see Vedanta becomes lit up for you. Um, Sri Ram says the same as mutual superimposition. Yes, adhyasa, anyonya adhyasa is a technical term. If you see Shankara's commentary, he uses the term mutual superimposition, adhyasa. 
Michael Bird. If heat is Brahman, we as flames are the heat becoming perceptible, then where does the concept of devotional God fit into this? Would God be the entire form of the universe, the ultimate flame? True. We means the individual beings now are that, it's like the principle of heat all pervading, now manifest here in this place as one fire. Similarly, one all pervasive consciousness, which I am, manifest here as this personality. But then what is God? God is that same one imperceptible pure consciousness manifest as this bonfire, cosmic bonfire of the universe. All of it together. Abhijit says, Patanjali 4, Vritti Sarupya Mitaratra, identification with thought process objects. Is this common in both Patanjali Yoga and Advaita? I understand the solution is different in the two approaches. Yes, common to both. That is the problem. Like um, Rupert Spira said, awareness of objects eclipses the awareness of awareness. Uh, Patanjali Yoga says, then stop the awareness of objects. You can't stop awareness. You, and good, that's a good thing. But you can, uh, for a temporarily, consciously, deliberately shut out objects through deep meditation. Advaita says, no, no, let's take a little closer look. Is it really that the awareness of objects eclipses awareness of awareness or the ignorance of what awareness is? That is always uh, eclipsing whatever, um, awareness of awareness. Um, Madhusudan Saraswati, the great commentator on the Bhagavad Gita, um, a great non-dualist post-Shankara, 500 years after Shankara, 700 years after Shankara. In one of the, in one place in his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, he says, actually there are these two broad paths. The path of meditation, and the path, which is for the followers of Sankhya and Yoga, and the path of uh, Vedantic inquiry for the followers of the Vedic path, he says. And then he makes a comment, for those who consider the world to be real, there is no other way except uh, extinguishing awareness of the world for a time in order to appreciate the reality. Oh, who am I? He says this. And then he goes on to say, but it's not necessary for those who are in the path of Advaita Vedanta, because you consider the world to be an appearance of consciousness, just like a movie on, movie on a screen. He doesn't say movie on a screen, but I'm adding. So if you understand how what a movie is, what the screen is, that's enough to show you the screen. Even when the movie is playing, you don't have to switch up the movie. So these two approaches, he says, these are there. Shiva says, reflected consciousness along with mind takes up a body manifest in, um, in a body as tendencies, reflected consciousness, not pure consciousness as the heat. Yes. Rick says, Vedanta uses meditation to strengthen, quieten, and purify the mind so their understanding can be clear and abiding. Isn't Patanjali saying the same thing? Regularly dipping into temporary samadhi cultures the mind-body system so that nirvikalpa samadhi dawns, eventually dawns. It seems, sounds to me, yoga and Vedanta are complementary. They are complementary. They are complementary in a practical sense. Those who are following Advaita Vedanta will soon realize Unless one has already a highly purified and focused mind, and such, such a thing would be rare without practice. You had to practice meditation. That's why many of the post-Shankara works, not Shankara so much himself, but many of the post-Shankara works of Advaitins, there's always a section on meditation, which is not the core section. The core section is where 
tattvamasi, you are that, that is explained and the truth is pointed out. But the other part of it is uh, meditation to support Advaita. Girish says, you draw a distinction between yoga and Advaita. Isn't Advaita also yoga, Jnana yoga? Correct. Advaita is Jnana yoga and the yoga which I mentioned was Patanjali yoga, Dhyana yoga, Raja yoga, which Vivekananda, the term Vivekananda used. So the yoga of meditation, yoga of knowledge. Of course, yoga of bhakti also. Sri Ram says, to get to that witness, especially when buffeted by distractions, is it good to concentrate on it or to go back to your mantra or self-inquiry, which is more effective? You can't concentrate on the witness. If you're concentrating on something, it's the witness which is concentrating. So what you are concentrating on is not the witness. So the wit uh, everything appears to the witness. You cannot concentrate on the witness. You, you can only appreciate what the witness is through a process of self-inquiry. So you can go, you can use self-inquiry, you can go back to the mantra, depends on your, the way you have done sadhana. Different things can work at different times. Or you can simply take refuge in, in God if, you, if you're so inclined. At the time of when its mind is being buffeted, one can try all three. One can try self-inquiry, one can try yogic method that is like a mantra or a focus, some kind of focus. Or just sharanagati, surrender to, to God. Vakya Vritti, or let me leave it for the retreat later on. Sri says, is it that so few people are enlightened or that since I am not enlightened, I recognize them? Both. There are more enlightened people about, around than one might think. Uh, but then it's still true that uh, practically speaking, it is rare. That's why the doubt arises. Inari says, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Correct. Hotel California by the Eagles. Yes. Vivekananda says, you cannot run away from the machine. You have to learn how to work the machine until the machine sets you free. B. Srinivasaraji says, is it correct to understand awareness of awareness happens at the level of reflected consciousness? Your consciousness being itself, which is solid, vast, and unassailable. Uh, vastu. Is it correct to understand awareness? Awareness happens at the level of reflective. Yeah. Remember, the awareness of awareness is more of an understanding, not a particular experience. So when Rupert Spira uses the word, the term awareness of awareness, Advaita Vedanta um, calls this self-luminosity. It's always there. It has to be noticed. It has to be uh, appreciated. It's not something that you do. So I can have awareness of a book. I can have awareness of the clock. I can have awareness of the cloth. So these are things I can do. I can direct my awareness to all of them. But that way I cannot have awareness of awareness because you cannot direct awareness to, um, to itself. Uh, it's not an object. But one can understand what it is. The way, another example is light. So by the light, one can illumine all the objects which are in darkness. Wherever you focus the light, that object will be illumined. But to reveal the light itself, you don't have to focus the light on the light. You can't do it. And nor do you need to do it. Because the light is self-luminous. It's always revealing itself. It illumines, it reveals itself, does not illumine itself. There's a lot of discussion about this in philosophy. 
uh, about the question of self-reflexivity. Can a thing operate upon itself? And short answer, no, it cannot. So light does, cannot illumine itself. And so why not? And isn't light illumining itself? No. The definition of illumination, so it's a very subtle matter. The definition of illumination is something in darkness is now revealed. You call that illumination. Was light ever in darkness that it has now to be revealed? No. Similarly, consciousness, awareness is not something that needs awareness. Vidyaranya Swami gives a nice example, I think. Anchandashi probably. Mm. So you add sugar to something to make it sweet. You add sugar to water to make it sweet. You should add sugar to milk to make it sweet. If you taste the water or the milk, you say it's sweet. What happened? Sugar was added to it. Now, how do you make sugar sweet? Do you add sugar to sugar? No. Sugar is unique in that way. It has intrinsic sweetness. It is sweet by itself and it can lend its sweetness to others. Similarly, awareness is self-luminous. It reveals itself and it can reveal other things. It doesn't require more awareness to become awareness. So when um, Rupert says awareness of awareness, this just language which he's using, right? uh, you can't put it in any other way. Uh, Sri Ramakrishna uses exactly the same language. He says, bodhe bodh, literally awareness of awareness or awareness in awareness. Shiva says, so mind at the high level of highest purity, detachment is still as consciousness. Is, is a thin line where the difference between good, bad, sin, no sin, all dissolves. Still at the level of the mind, we are all working upon it till the end. Yes and no. At the level of the mind, level of the body, this body-mind will continue. But this understanding, this realization, it dawns upon the mind. And uh, there is an effect on the mind. When you realize that you are unlimited awareness, you are like the one sun which illumines the entire universe. Similarly, you're the one sun which illumines all life itself. Then the effect on this mind will be a thrill, a bliss, literally what the Americans call mind blowing. <laughs> so that's why it's the most, it's not an experience and yet it is an experience. It's the most extraordinary experience, culmination of all experiences. So, uh, it's not true to say that even after you realize that you'll just keep on working on the mind till the end of your life. No, it's a huge before and after thing. It's a huge difference, enormous difference. All right, let's wrap it up here. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu